Wow, you guys are really quiet this morning. <clears throat> I was fine a while ago. All of a sudden, my voice has gotten started doing this again. I don't know what the deal is. It must be allergic to preaching or something. I don't know. So anyway, <clears throat> good to see you this morning. Our time of worship together. Um, we're gonna do a little survey this morning. Um, and uh, this, this, let me ask you a question. Uh, throw up some. Throw up the next slide. The the one about not not. Is that the next slide? No, the next one. One more. Go one more. There we go. Uh, which of these words, look at these words, which of these words describe the typical Christian today? Now, not you, okay? <laughs> which of these words describe the typical Christian that you know of today, okay? We're going to do a quick survey. Okay, how many of you would say that a typical Christian is worried? Okay, how many of you say that a typical Christian is secure? I mean, this is not really good. How many of you say the typical Christian is uptight? I know a lot of those. How many of you say the typical, typical Christian is peaceful? Okay. How about pressured? Burdened? Stressful? Joyful? Okay. Hmm. Okay, we'll see how this works out today. And we're going to be talking about this because these are the words. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the very last words of Jesus before he uh, went to the cross, uh, to, was, went through his trials and went to the cross. Uh, as we've been talking for the last several weeks in a series called Famous Last Words about the, the words that Jesus, as he was in the upper room, uh, right before he went to the cross on the Thursday night, Thursday evening, Thursday afternoon, before he, and, and the, we know about the Lord's Supper, and we're going to celebrate that on this Thursday together in an upper room service. But uh, as he was there, he'd had a lot of teaching. And John, in his gospel, the Gospel of John, verses, um, uh, there's several chapters there, uh, uh, 13, 14, 15, and 16, we've been looking through, have talked about these words of Jesus. And today we come to the very last words he taught before he went uh, to the cross. And it's interesting because the main theme of this portion of, of chapter 16 of John, the main theme is the word joy. He's going, guys, I want to tell, tell you how to have joy. And it's not the way we often think of joy so often. So if you have your Bibles this morning, in whatever format you have them in, turn with me to John chapter 16. We'll begin with verse uh, 16, John 16, 16, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. Now, the first thing this morning I want to talk about, and in your bulletin, if you don't have that in your bulletin as well, on the back now are the notes for the sermon. And on there, I put this, those uh, three key parts, portions of verses that talk about where Jesus, during this passage of Scripture, talks about this whole theme of joy. It comes over back through three times. Uh, the thing that we want to talk about this morning is Jesus says, as, as he, he explains joy, he explains that for real joy, you have to understand how God's process works. Because if we under, look at the world, we will not be confused sometimes. Um, he, he talks about here, how does he get joy into our lives? And if we don't understand God's process, we'll have the same confusion that disciples did as we look at the verses today. So let's begin right, by reading right in verse 16, uh, verse, uh, verse 16 through 18 to start off with this morning. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Now last week, the last verse we read uh, in verse 15 said basically the same thing, and then he repeats himself. He's going, in a little while you will see me no more, but in a little while you will see me. And then he says in verse 17, at this, at this, some of the disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. 
Now, let me just, a side note before I explain something here. This little while thing is not in, when we think, how long, when you think of a little while, how long do you think a little while is? How long is a little while to to your five-year-old? Okay, 30 seconds, you know, a minute, five minutes, you know, are we there yet? Are we there yet? You know, it's like a little while is, is a really short period of time. That is not in the perspective of Jesus here because he says over in Hebrews uh, 1037, he says, in, re- in reference to the second coming, okay, he says this, in just a little while, he is coming, he, he is coming who, is, uh, and who is, will come and will not delay. And he's saying, in a little while, I'll come back. How, how long is God's little while? A little bit longer than our little while, right? You know? And so when he's talking here, when Jesus is talking, keep that in perspective. He's saying to the disciples, in a little while, uh, you will see me no more. And then in a little while, you'll see me again. He's talking about probably here, we don't know exactly, but probably here about his second, second coming. Now, for, for us, it's been I know, over 2,000 years already, and we're going like, that's a little while? Well, in, in light of eternity, yes, it is. And so that's perspective here. Now, let me, let me comment on these verses here. There's something about this, this whole process of understanding joy. The disciples here, the first mistake they made uh, is, as, as they were here, the first thing they did was, what did they do? They asked, where was Jesus at this point in this conversation? Where was Jesus when they were talking to each other? Jesus was right there. Okay? He was right in the room. But who did they ask the question? Jesus says, you know, in a little while I'll be going, and you won't see me no more. But I, and he said that kind of, and it was a little confusing, of course. They made the mistake. Uh, the first thing they did was started talking to one another. Uh, they, had, they had Jesus sitting right there, but they started talking to one another. They asked, what's he talking about? What does he mean? The important principle that starts off right here in the very first part of this verse is to build your faith in a time of confusion. Who do you ask the question to first? This is not hard. Jesus, okay. You ask God first. You ask Jesus first the question. Jesus is the one who said this and stood. So what do we do? So often what do we do when we have confusion about something? They call, you call me. And then you're even more confused. Because I don't know the answer to everything. I mean, I know the answer to some things, but I don't know the answer to everything. Or you call your best buddy or something, you know. And, you know, and so the re- really interesting thing is in the, one of the reasons we get together in small groups is not to pool our ignorance. Now, I just said that. Okay, I'm sorry. But it's not about that. It's about looking at God's Word and what He has to say to us. And so with the, first, the disciples here, you know, this is encouraging to me. Because these are the guys that had followed Jesus for three years. They had been as close as followers. We think we have, they have some kind of special endowment with wisdom and stuff. No, 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 no. They seem to learn nothing over the three years. And so when we are confused about God's word, when we're confused about what God says, the first thing we need to do is we ask Jesus first. We had to ask him. One of the reasons that God allows you and I to go through times of confusion is so we will turn to him for answers. Not so we will just be more confused. If I always had all the answers, would I ever turn to, fi- to him to find them? No, you wouldn't. But God uses that confusion in our life as a Christian for us to turn to him first. And so he, he does that. And then he goes on in verse 19. Jesus, it says, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you will see me no more? And then after a little while you'll see me. And then he says in verse 20, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. What's that have to do with anything? 
You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And this is a key to this whole, whole passage here as Jesus concludes his teaching, his, his instructions to his disciples before he kind of like last minute instructions before he leaves the earth. He's saying there's, there's some things in my life and some things in your life that we're, there, that we're hanging on to that won't bring us joy. And they suck the joy right out of us. There's some things we hang on to that don't do that. And if Jesus is going to bring real joy into my life, he's saying there's sometimes we have to understand that loss is not necessarily a bad thing in our lives. What he's saying is, is sometimes what he wants to do is he wants to take, and he wants to take the, the loss in our life and turn it into something positive in our life and encourage us in our life. Uh, grief over sin in your life. If you have grief over sin, grief is loss, right? If you have grief over sin in your life, what can that result in? Can it result in joy? It can result in the joy of forgiveness in your life. The only way you will have joy over forgiveness is to have grief over your sin. In the same way, you know, a grief over loneliness. If you, if you have grief over loneliness, what can it lead you to do? It can lead you to connect with God in a new way that you've never connected with Him before. Or connect with God's people in a way that you've never connected with them before. If you have a grief, if you're, if you have a grief facing the death of somebody you love, uh, even a very deep grief over that, what can it result in? It can result in a, in a deeper or a joy of recognizing the truth of heaven, that this is not all there is. And the reality is, what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, hey guys, I'll tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. The world is going to weep and mourn, uh, I mean, the world is going to uh, rejoice over, he's getting ready to say, for me leaving this place, leaving this earth, and you will grieve about that, me leaving this earth, getting ready to be, remember, the next day he's going to be crucified. He said, you will grieve over that, but what's going to happen to that? But he says, but your grief will turn to joy. Your grief will turn to joy. He didn't say, now, now understand something here. This is a key. He didn't, say, he didn't say your grief will be replaced by joy. He said your grief will turn to joy. It's kind of what it says in Psalm 35. It says crying uh, may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. God wants to do something in our life. And this is the key in this first three verses. This is the key. And this is, if you like to fill in blanks, this is the first fill in the blank in your bulletin, okay? For those of you who like fill in blanks. Um, God brings joy to our lives, not by substitution, but by transformation. God brings joy to our lives, not by substitution, but by transformation. That's what he does. That's the next slide here. And he, and he does that in a real sense. And uh, there's a principle here in, uh, that will turn your life upside down if you understand this. Because if you're the kind of person, if you're the kind of person who has been moving from job to job to try to find some happiness, some satisfaction, and, and you say, I just can't seem to find it anywhere. I hate to tell you this, but... You can't find joy and happiness by substitution, by substituting one job for another job for another job. If you're the kind of person who has to have a new something every year, every few years, a new car, a new house, a new whatever, something every few years to feel like, to, to find some joy, some happiness in your life, uh, um, you've already discovered this in your life, that if you, that's what, who you are. You can't put enough new somethings into your life to bring you real joy. It does it for a short period of time, but then it, the joy is gone. The happiness is gone out of that. It doesn't work. It's the world's version of joy, not God's version of joy. And, and, and you know, or, or if you think some of you are thinking, well, well, you know what? I really need to be happy to have, have joy in my life as a new wife or new husband. Don't look at them. Some of you actually here think that because I've 
know that reality. You think that's, new relationships will help me to have real joy. Well, the reality is, we think that if I'm not experiencing joy, there must be something wrong with my circumstances. So if I just change my circumstances, then I'll have joy. Well, the disciples learned about this when they saw Jesus resurrected here. And this is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, I don't want to just, I don't want to just uh, uh, substitute your, the grief for, for something else to bring you joy. I'm going to turn that grief, that hardship, whatever it is, I want to transform it into joy. The disciples learned about that when they saw Jesus resurrected. They saw Jesus Christ, the one they followed for three years. They saw him as he was going through. Uh, they thought he was going to be the king and the Messiah of all Israel. They saw him marched up a hill, put on a cross, and killed. And then what did they happen? It was the worst thing they thought that had ever happened to them. That's what they thought. If you'd have been there, if I'd have been there, we'd have thought the same thing, right? I mean, that's natural to think this is the worst thing that could possibly happen. But as we're getting ready to learn, as we'll talk about next week, but that Sunday when the resurrection happened, the worst thing that had ever happened to them became the best thing that ever happened to them. Because the thing that was, that was sorrowful, the thing that was hard, became, was transformed. It changed to bring about the greatest joy we can possibly have. It was transformation. In one miraculous instance, they realized the joy didn't come from an exchange of circumstances. It comes through a change of heart and perspective. And to nail down this point, Jesus gives a little illustration here. I thought it was a great illustration. To kind of nail that at this point about, it's not about substitution, it's about transformation. He says this in verse 21. He says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Let me stop here and say something. Guys, we don't understand this at all. All the guys that admit that, you don't understand the depth of what it means to have the gift. I was there for the birth of my two kids. You know, and, and I know just by experiencing what my wife went through, but of course I was from a distance and I made her mad because I was over talking. The, first, the birth of our first child, you know, my wife went into hospital. She was having contractions two minutes apart. And we thought, man, she's going to be 22 hours later. That's what happened. 22 hours later after a lot of yelling and screaming. We had our first child, okay? And during that time when I was there in the hospital, I, there was 22 hours, you know, the doctor and I, the, uh, I guess it's the pediatrician, uh, he was there and, and he, was, he and I were talking about cameras and all kind of stuff. And here's my wife over screaming and yelling over on the other side of the room. We were going to do it all natural, by the way, you know, and it didn't work very well. But the reality is, is that she went through some pain. I saw it. I didn't experience it. Women, us guys, don't know what it means. But we appreciate the pain you go through. But I know one thing that happened after all that pain and all that screaming and, and all the stuff that was going on. When our first daughter, when our da first child, Kara, was born, immediately after Kara was born, through all that pain and all that anguish and all that grief, the thing was, the first thing my wife is, she wanted to do was to hold the baby. That pain turned to joy. I thought it's a great illustration. And then Jesus says this, so with you, so with you, verse 22. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. You know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> After 22 hours of pain, my wife had joy. And then it took her another five years to decide he's going to have another kid, by the way, because she still remembered that. But eventually that went away too. 
because it was the joy of having a child, and we had a second child. Thank goodness for Keith, our son. You know, so uh, that, 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 that thought went away as well. So when Jesus talks about this joy, he says this, I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one takes away your joy. Two things about joy we need to understand from this passage if we're going to experience the kind of joy that God wants us to have in our life. And this really defines what joy is. If it can be taken away, it isn't joy. If it can be taken away, it isn't joy. If I've got my life invested in anything, if my source of joy is anything that can be taken away, it's not genuine joy. It's just temporary happiness. And number two, true joy, Jesus says, comes out of Jesus' presence. He will see, he says, I will see you again, and when I see you again, you'll rejoice. So here's the test for you and me in regard to what he's saying here about joy, and this first thing about joy. If joy is coming in and out of your life right now, and you kind of like have some happiness and not happiness, and ha- you know, it's kind of in and out of your life, and you think that's the real thing, uh, you need to check up, have a checkup. Maybe what you're doing is you're putting your joy in things that can easily be taken away. Maybe it's that you're seeing uh, that as your main source, maybe your source of relationship. You think maybe a relationship with someone is that which, which will, will change. But the only relationship that will make a difference in your life that will be eternal is the relationship we have with God through his son, Jesus Christ. The interesting thing is that the process of joy works exactly the opposite for the world that it does for the believer. For the believer, he says, you're going to grieve. Jesus says, you're going to grieve, but your grief will turn to joy, and no one will take your joy away from you. For the world, Jesus says, while you're grieving, they're, they're going to rejoice temporarily, but that joy is going to turn to pain. The joy is going to turn to sorrow. Now, I don't know about you. I'd rather have Jesus' type of joy, which is permanent, than the world's type of joy, which is temporary and comes and goes and, you know, based on what your circumstance is for that day. And so as Jesus is giving these final words to his disciples, he talks about, hey guys, I'm getting ready to leave you. I'm getting ready to be nailed to a cross. But guess what? It's not the worst thing that could happen. We're going to take that grief, that pain, and we're going to turn it into something. God's going to turn it into something that's the greatest thing that has ever happened in your life. That's how God works. He transforms sorrow into joy. And he invites us to join along with him as well. And then he, then he transfers, then he changes, changes thoughts here a little bit. Jesus teaches next about the connection between prayer and joy. Between prayer and joy. In verse, verse 23, he says, In that day, what day is that? Uh, well, we don't know for exactly. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. He's going, when I leave you. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. And he keeps saying that. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Once again, it's the whole thing about joy. See, right now, when they had a question, when they had to uh, know something about God, and when they, at this point in time, who did they ask? Jesus. Hopefully, they didn't ask each other because they didn't have a lot of collective wisdom but they asked jesus he was right there in front of them so they didn't have to they didn't have direct access access to the father they kind of went to jesus who was god uh, god incarnate god upon this earth and, and they saw him here they've been asking him but he says now when i go away you're going to have something you didn't have before 
You're going to have direct access to the Father. You don't have to ask me. He said, you will ask in my name, and we have to talk about that in a minute. But he said, first you're going to ask. He said, so there's two components of prayer here. If we're going to, if we're going to understand this whole thing of what Jesus is talking about, he says, and, and you receive, and your joy will be made complete. He says, number one, you've got to ask. You've got to ask. You've got to ask in Jesus' name, he says. He says, if you, if you want joy in your life, the more you ask in Jesus' name, the more joy is going to be complete. Now, what does it mean to, to ask in Jesus' name? That's kind of a confusing thing. In Jesus' name means we're looking at his purpose, at Jesus' power. We're not just asking what we want. We're at, trying to think about what Jesus wants. As best we can, we ask for those things in our life. And you're going like, how can I possibly know that? Two ways. Number one, this is why it's so important to know this. The best way to know what God wants you to do and wants you to ask for is to understand Scripture. That is why it is essential for a person who really wants to have joy in their life and to have a prayer life that is dynamic you have to know this first. And then we're going to talk about, and then you have to pray. Then part of the prayer thing is to, is to connect with God. Prayer is about, and, and, and you, know what, you know what, you know why you, you, you study this? Not so you can have more knowledge. You study this because you want to know God better. You want to know his heart, his mindset. So when you pray in Jesus' name and his power, what you're simply doing is this. You're saying, okay, God, I read in your word what you say, and I, want to, I know you want that. And so when I pray in your name, I'm praying according to what you would want me to pray for. So the first thing is ask and pray in Jesus' name, but there's a second part to this joy. Many believers miss this part. He says you ask and... What's the second part? You receive. You ask and you receive. You know, the thing is... Uh, he, Asking you will see what he says, and then what will happen? Then your joy will be made complete. So often we, have, we pray like this. It doesn't say asking. It doesn't matter what God, if God answers your prayer or not, because if you, know, you love God and your joy will be made. It doesn't say that. It says a lot of times I hear people pray prayers like this. They go like, God, if you want to give me this, you can, but I really don't know if you want to do this or not, so I don't know whether I should pray that or not. You know, they just go through this whole rigmarole. They go into this prayer. And, and you know, if you're going to pray like that, why even pray? You're going like, well, I don't know what. Pray according to his word. And when you pray this, you can pray, ask, and God says, I'll give it to you. Because it's not. There's things in here I know God wants. He wants my children not to always be safe. Okay, now I'm not saying God does not not want them to be safe, but he doesn't say in here that's his primary. When I pray for my children, how I pray for my children is this. God, help them to grow close to you. To follow you with all of their heart, all their soul, all their strength, all, whatever that takes. That's a risky prayer, by the way, for a parent. But it's the only prayer you can pray that will really honor them and help them to become the people. that You know, the most important thing in my life is not that my kids make a lot of money or that my kids have a lot of stuff or anything like that. The most important thing in life that I know that God's word has for me is that they, are, they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I can pray that, and God, please, and I can pray that with confidence. 
So he's going like he say he says so pray, ask and he says and if you do that you pray in God's in Jesus' name it's not like this mantra you pray where you like in your name God I'll pray this it's no you're praying according to what his his will is what he wants to do and you do that by learning who he is and growing in a relationship with his ask and you will receive here's a simple rule for building your joy through prayer simple rule don't ask God for things you don't expect him to give. You heard me right. Don't ask God for things you don't expect him to give you. If you're going like, God, I just don't really know if you want me to give me this. Well, you know, and you're going like, okay, you know, what's going to happen to you if you ask God for something you want to give to you? If you go to God and you sincerely ask him for the wrong thing, just like any loving father, what is he going to say? No. And I hope you're, if you're a loving father and a loving mother, when your child comes to you and asks you for something you know that it's not for their best interest, what are you going to say? I know it's a hard word. No. You are not your child's best buddy, you're their parent. And there's a difference. And we need to understand that. God is not our equal. (laughs) So when we pray and ask, we're asking somebody who knows the answer. The perfect Father. And so he wants to respond. And so if you pray the wrong thing, hey, you know. But what he's saying here is the direction of our prayer life. And if you want to have joy in life, ask and you'll receive. And when you receive God's, you know, when you know that you're in tune with God, what does that do for you? It brings you joy. It brings you joy. I'd encourage you, if you want real joy in your life, to begin to ask God specifically for the things you can think you can ask him for in Jesus' name. And then verse 25, verse 25, I'm just going straight through this. Verse 25, it says this, Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I'm, I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. He's saying once again, hey, you don't have to go through me now. You're asking in my name, but you're asking according to my will. But you don't go through me. You have direct access to the Father. See, it's, it's like this. And this is some of you, I don't know what church background you come out of, but if you came out of a Catholic background or some other backgrounds, this is, this is a hang-up you have. You think you have to go through somebody to get to God. That is not scriptural. You will never have joy-producing prayer until you understand one thing. You have direct access to God the Father. That's what he's saying here. It's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says it's not this go-between thing where you're asking me and I'm asking God and, and you never get together, God, and you never get together. God loves you just as much, he says, Jesus says, as I love you. We both love you. And then in verse 27, he says, No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me, and I have believed that I came from God. And then in verse 28, I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. This whole passage is wrapped up in this one, one thing. And let, let me, this whole last few verses, it's this. This is a summary of verses 23 through 28. God loves you. He hears your request. And he meets, now I've added a word in my mind, he meets our deepest needs. God loves you. That's what it's saying in these last few verses. God loves you. He hears your request when when you're in tune with him, and he'll meet your deepest needs. 
You think that was encouraging to the disciples? I mean, he's getting ready to leave them. He'd been hanging out with them for three years. And now he was, he's going away, he says, and I'm not going to be with you anymore. And so what he does, you understand, is that not only do I love you, Jesus says, but the Father loves you. God the Father loves you. Here's your request, and he meets your deepest needs. And then he transitions again to another thought. This is the last thought he has in here before he goes to the cross. Now, remember something. Remember, this is the night before he's going to die the next day, okay? The night before he's going to die the next day. Keep it in mind. He's been with these guys for three years, teaching them, showing them, being Christ before them, and here they are the night before, and this is what they say, John 16, 29. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now... You are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone to ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. It took them three years to figure that out. I'm just amazed when I think of the context of that, man. I mean, this is crazy. These guys have been, if you're with Jesus, don't you think you've been smarter than that? You wish you were. For three years, if you hung around with Jesus day to day to day, saw all the miracles he did, heard all the teaching he did, everything else, you think you'd have got to this point a little earlier in the game, right? But they're saying, you know, and I underline my, now we get it. But you know what Jesus replies in verse, in verse 20, 31? He says, do you now believe? And I'll put in my word, in my, in my, I read in my word, do you just now believe? Are you just now getting it? Really? Jesus replied, he says, a time is coming, and in fact, has come. And he, he reminds them of this again. A time is coming, and in fact, has now come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. He reminds them, hey, guys, just because you're my Father doesn't mean everything's going to be great and perfect and, you know, just have this warm, fuzzy feelings all the time. He's going like, hey, guys, you're going to be scattered. It's going to be tough for you. And they don't know what's coming. But what's coming is great, but also painful. And then he wraps up this whole passage, the very last verse, verse 33. He says this. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. And going like, wow, what's some great last words. Jesus, can't you say, in this world, everything is going to be perfect and lovely and wonderful? No, Jesus is a realist. He doesn't sugarcoat it for, his, for the guys. He says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. How do we find the kind of peace that lasts? How do we kind of find the joy, the kind of joy that lasts? How do we find the kind of peace that's more than just a dream? Jesus says it in two words in this verse. It says, where do you find it? In me. In me. In me, you may have peace. See, it's like this. God just said, says, says this to us. God says, I will transform your sorrow into joy. I will not, not just substitute it. I will just, it's, you know, so often what happens, it's, it's like with kids. It's like with kids. You know, 
I wish we learned differently, but like our kids sometimes, if, if, if they break a toy or their, or their playmate goes home something and they get all upset, what do you do? You give them another toy? Oh, couldn't possibly. No, you know, that's just unthinkable that would, they could live without that toy. We substitute all the time. We think that we just substitute, substitute, substitute. But the reality is sometimes they never learn. You know, if all the time is every time your child does something wrong or some, something, and something breaks or something, and all you do is substitute and give them something else, what do they grow up thinking? You know? There's no difficulties in this world. There's nothing, I don't have to learn how to, how, to, how to deal with difficulties in the world. The sad thing is, is that we do that with our children, but God has to do that with us. Because how we learn to deal with the difficulties in life is God takes, and he doesn't just substitute, he just doesn't always rescue us. But what he'll do is he'll take that and he'll work through the sorrow, through the pain, through the whatever it is, and he will transform that, he says, into a peace and a joy that will last. Because it's not based upon circumstances. God transforms sorrow into joy. So we started off by talking about everybody else, you know, in those first few verses about all those different things. Okay, I want to ask you, throw that last slide up on the screen. Here's two different verses. The first one comes from a guy in the Old Testament, Job. Uh, He says, I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. The other verse is from Jesus. It says, I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give you isn't fragile like the peace the world gives. So don't be troubled or afraid. Which one of those verses describes you? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. But which one of those verses describes who you are or more closely? I have no peace, no quietness. I'll have no rest, only turmoil. If that's the verse that describes it, you are depending upon the things that the world determines to give you peace and joy. And if that's true, then you'll never have peace and joy in your life. But the peace and joy that God gives you, I don't know, I know a lot of you are going through stuff right now, okay? In a group this large, there's a lot of you going through stuff. But God says in spite of the stuff that you're going through, you can have joy. Because it doesn't come from the circumstances around you, it comes from an inner peace that knows that God is with you, he's not leaving you. And there's something more than this. That's what he was leaving with his disciples. He was saying that. It's not peace that's the absence of trouble, but peace in the midst of trouble. It's not peace in our circumstances, but peace in him. It's not peace of escape. It's the the peace of overcoming. How How do you discover this kind of peace, this kind of joy? You have to listen to and act upon what Jesus says. Be hearers and doers of his word. And in doing so, he will transform your sorrow into joy because that's what he does. If he can do it upon the, the worst thing that ever happened in history, a perfectly perfect man, Jesus Christ, dying on a cross that's transformed into the greatest thing that could ever happen, 
the option, the opportunity for us to have a relationship with God, He can do it in anything in our lives. I would pray that during this season at this time of year that you and I would, would understand this, this, these teachings of Jesus. Jesus has taught us a lot of things. I would challenge you to go back and start with chapter 13 again and read through the last several weeks of what we've talked about because these are hugely important keys to learning how to live the kind of Christian life, the kind of life that God wants us to live. It's a life that can be joyous in the midst of anything. Let's pray.